so um, just recapping. So the first session is obviously about my testimony from witchcraft to Christ. The second session was about a lot of the prophecies that God's sort of shown me over the years. And then the third one is about prayer and revival. Um, because in my testimony, you notice that Jesus said to me three things. He said to me, uh, stop what you're doing. You, uh, you can be forgiven for this and come to know me. And so that was, Jesus gave me that when he said that to me, come to me, he said it three times. And so for me, it's, it's that being about that journey of prayer is about coming to know God as well. And uh, so just to give you a brief introduction to my journey into prayer. When I was about, uh, I think must have been about 19, I guess, I don't know, so 18, 19, um, I'd, uh, I'd lost my job and uh, I had to go down the old job centre and find myself another one. And I looked in the, in the window and there was this, uh, it was just, I didn't really pay attention to where it was, it was a cleaner um, just at some convent or something. I was like, oh, you know, why not? I can do that. So, and uh, I went there that day and got the job. And I had a real privilege because I worked there for eight months and I got to spend eight months with nuns. Um, now, a lot of people don't see nuns. You don't, you know, there's all kind of a mystique about them, but I got to see them day by day. And they taught me the art of prayer. They taught me things about contemplative prayer, meditative prayer. And they, it, what they taught me and the kind of prayer life that they, they, they gave to me just radically changed my, my walk big time. And, 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 and everything that they taught me then, I'm still practicing that today and, uh, and more so. And I now run a thing called Prayer School where I'm teaching people how to, to pray like this. And, and we've been running it now for about 12 weeks. So we do it in 10 week blocks and take a bit of time off and then another 12 weeks, 10 weeks. And most weeks people are in tears, they're having, they're having revelations of God that they've never experienced before. They're having an intimacy with God that they've never had before. Um, and so there's a, there's a whole other dynamic to prayer. But it's all, you know, when I said earlier about one of those prophecies, uh, which was about when Brexit would happen, Theresa May would step down. But then God started talking about these... Um, he wants to restore monastic communities. He wants to restore prayer houses across this nation because those things are quintessential for what God's going to do through his church in the days ahead because we need prayer. And so as I prophesied those things, I didn't really understand what I was talking about. And so then I started researching it and looking into it. And God kind of led me on this bit of a merry dance, really, for a few years studying about this thing. And one of the things you'll realize about prophets and prophecy is that the prophet becomes the prophecy as well. And so this whole thing about this whole community of prayer has been so ingrained into me now that um, I know in the future it's a part, I mean, it's what we're doing as a church. So as a church, um, I say we run a house of prayer, we, um, I run the prayer school, but also we're having a, um, a building built on, a, on some farmland um, that's like a 200-seater, uh, one part is 200-seater bar, the barn, and then at the back, you've got all the kitchens and stuff. But upstairs is residential areas because we want to have like a prayer barn, it's called. So we're creating, it's not just about a church in the classic sense, but we are working the land, praying over the land, healing the land. We've got this whole kind of prayer thing going on, which I'll explain as well in a minute. And we want to not so much church plant, but we want people to come learn the model by staying with us for a while, working the land, learning this way of prayer and all the different types of prayer that we do and then and, and the whole and how the church interfaces into that and then take that away in some way and then planting that out where they come from. So that's that's a little bit about about me, my own prayer life. And I'm not saying it's to blow my own trumpet. I'm saying it's because um, I, I feel I've got to be what I'm preaching. 
So I, on five days a week, I spend between three to three and a half hours a day in prayer and meditating on the word and things like that. And it revolutionized everything that I did. You know, when I first became a, a pastor, I was, I remember the first four and a half years I said were the most awful years in my Christian life. And I did everything back to front. I, I would be like, I would spend hours, you know, coming up with the best sermon that anyone ever heard. And I would, you know, be getting, trying to get quotes from famous, you know, all the things that you've got to do. Tell a joke, get a quote, blah, 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 blah. And, and I just felt dead inside and, and things weren't going right with the church. It seemed I took one step forward and three back. And it just, no matter what I did, just didn't work. And it got to a point where I actually was about to throw in the towel. I'd had enough. I was like, I'm done with this. Every time, no matter what we do, we did big events, everything, you know, people get saved and suddenly something comes along and wipes it away again. It just, it just got to a point where I just couldn't go forward anymore. And I said to my wife, I said, I need to go on holiday now. If I don't go on holiday now, I just don't think I can do this anymore. And someone then, almost within minutes, phoned up on the phone saying, hey, we've got a chalet here in Devon. Uh, did you know anyone who would like to borrow it for the week? Because we've got no one and it's, you can have it for free. Um, so it was like, yeah. So we went to Devon. And it was there that God taught me saying, you need to live your life from a place of rest. And I was like, what does that mean? And he took me to Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter one and two, where the day starts in the evening. It doesn't start in the morning. So the day starts from the place of rest. Then it goes into a place of work. And I'd been doing my ministry from a place of work and never from a place of rest. And he said, you're also suffering from ministry idolatry. I said, like, what do you mean? He says, you're putting man in the ministry first and you're putting me last. He said, you need to be spending the amount of time that you were spending in trying to come up with the best sermon in the universe. You need to be spending that on your knees with me, minister to me first, and from the place of ministering to me, I'll empower you to minister to man. And, and basically then he, taught, he said to me, if you do this, I will give you every sermon you'll never ever need to preach. Mm. So when I preach now, I, I don't have notes or anything. I just, God just literally downloads it to me, either as I'm doing it on the fly, or just he gives me a concept just before I stand up. Because I spend so, so much time meditating in the word and, and, and in prayer, that it's not like I haven't done my study. It's not like I haven't done it and I've been lazy. I haven't, I've got, it's all up there. And the Holy Spirit just brings it out as and what he requires. And then suddenly, um, the church just started to grow uh, and my preaching changed from being quite dry to very much dynamic, more spirit led. Uh, and spirit led doesn't mean weird and flaky either. It, it, it can be extremely theological and sometimes it can be extremely life transformational. You know, it's whatever he feels that he needs to do. And so uh, and that just changed everything for me. And so I'll never, 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 never go back to the old ways of doing stuff because it's just dead. And I've learned a, a whole new way of life, a whole new ease of life in ministry as well, which is not, it's based on coming from a place of rest and not from a place of striving. Um, even though I do a lot, you know, and pray a lot, but it's based on, on rest, not on striving. So, and the things that over the years that the Lord has taught me um, is that there are three major types of prayer. Um, and I, I, I try to see this as like, you've got the old temple. So you've got the outer court, then you've got the actual uh, temple part itself. And then you've got, within that, you've got the holy place and the most holy place. And so the outer court area is what I call the, the realm of vocal prayer. So in this, you've got the prayer of petition, which is John 5, 5, 
14, I won't give you the scriptures, you can get them another time, I can just print off this page or something. Uh, you have the prayer of faith, the prayer of supplication, the prayer of agreement, the prayer of consecration, the prayer of intercession, the prayer of forgiveness, prayer of thanksgiving, praying in the spirit and praying of psalms and liturgy as well. So they're, they're all kind of like the outer court experiences of prayer. And I'm sure everyone in the room has experienced them in, in various different ways. It's nice to be able to find all the scriptures to say, actually, this is a biblical form of prayer. Then we come to what I call holy place prayer. Um, and, and I'm talking about in respect to your intimacy with God. Okay, And so you come to the holy place, and this is uh, what I call meditative prayer or mental prayer as it's known as. So this is the prayer of meditation and reflection. Again, you've got things like Psalm 1, 2, Psalm 19, 14, 119, 15, Psalm 4, 4, Psalm 63, 6, etc, etc, etc. It's biblical, okay? And then you come into uh, the place of the Holy of Holies, which is known as what I would call silent prayer. Um, you know, things like be still, know that I am God. Now, any, any charismatics in the room today? Okay. We're not very good at being still and we're not very good at being quiet. You know, we've got to have that soaking music on, even if we are being quiet. We've got to have the worship on in the background or, you know, we, we've got to just, just make some noise. But actually, there, is, there should be a place in, in our lives for the place of silence. You know, it says in Psalm 62, verse one, it says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And 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 that was one thing that I learned from from that monastic community with those nuns is that they taught me about the importance of silence. And there's great power in it um, because I, I find that as a Christian and especially being a charismatic. So I'm, I'm not don't think I'm poking holes here. I'm not because as a charismatic Christian, you know, we're, we're all about getting into the breakthrough and pushing, pushing through and and persevering in prayer. But, you know, after a while, it's like, man, this is really hard work and it should be hard work. Prayer is work. But there's, there's two aspects to prayer. There's what I call inhaling prayer and exhaling prayer so it's you breathe in and you breathe out and so there's the there's the pushing forward and there's a pressing into god which is what i call exhaling prayer you know but unfortunately a lot of christians <sighs> they breathe out but they don't breathe in and the inhaling prayer is where we take time to have meditative prayer and contemplative prayer so that we are just resting in god's presence and we are being restored by him because one of the things that at being like connected with IHOP and stuff like that is they often said a lot of their intercessors get burnt out quite quickly because they are pushing through all the time and it's it's effort it's effort it's effort but there has to be the place where you come to a place of resting in God as well and being at peace in God and so it's you go in to come out you breathe in to breathe out we minister to God to minister to man yeah unfortunately over somewhere over you know over time we've we've turned it to let's minister to man and as pastors so we must minister man minister to man blah, 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 blah. and then it's like god at the end of the day or something or you know and so that's why now for me the, mo the my whole morning is taken up with me and god and everything i do comes from that place um to the point where my whole diary you can't see me before 11 o'clock in the morning ever because that's, but that's, that's me and my time with God and no one can come into that. It's just, you know, that's how it has to be. That, and for me, I have to jealously guard that because mm -hmm. I never ever want to go back to where I was before, where I burnt out and wanted to quit the ministry. Yeah? 
Because when you quit the ministry, you're quitting that which God has called you to do. And, and that would put you in an even worse place. So Isaiah 56 verse 7, I'm sure you all know this scripture. says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And, you know, we are the church, which is the mystical body of Christ on the earth. And Paul says that we are also living stones that neatly form together to form the temple of the living God, which is ultimately the new Jerusalem. But nevertheless, we are being formed together to make this temple of God. And the temple of God is a house of prayer. And, and, and so this is why I believe prophetically, God's got this really cool idea bring back the monastic communities and let more houses of prayer spread across this land so that the church, which is missional by her design, can actually do what she needs to do, but empowered by prayer. But also as Christians, we need to be in a place where we are strong in God because we have a strong prayer life with God. You know, if you want a good marriage, you can't, you can't spend 15 minutes with your wife every day and think that's going to that's going to give you that rock solid marriage you always want. It's just not going to happen. And unfortunately, you know, as Christians, we switch our brain off and think, well, it doesn't matter with God because he's spiritual, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's exactly the same. You are a relational being created in the image of God who is a relational uh, yes. being. And therefore, you've got to spend time with him uh, if you want to grow to know him. And, and, and that's why, you know, there are no shortcuts to this kind of stuff. You will meet Christians and you just know there's something about, you know, they've spent time with God because... They have spent time with God. And there'll be other Christians that are just, well, just, just like, you know, generic Christians, 15. And I don't mean this disrespectfully. But, you know, like you meet so-and-so and it's like, yeah, 15 minutes with Jesus, every day with Jesus, a bit, bit of my Bible, 20, 10 minutes prayer, and, that, and that's my prayer life. That's fine, but that's not going to change the world. And it certainly isn't going to change you. It will a bit. But I, I, I'm thinking in the days that we're coming into, Prayer is, is got to, is got to be really the essence of who we are. When I worked with these nuns, one of the nuns said to me, "I want my life to be a living, breathing prayer." And that that man, that's like, like an arrow straight to my heart. And I thought, if there's one thing in my life that I would desire more than anything else, it would be that my life would be a life of prayer. Now you might think, "Oh, Chris, you know, uh, what's all this praying stuff? There's work to be done." But it's from the place of rest. You can actually do that work if you want the power and the authority and anointing in your life and the wisdom that it comes from the place of the Holy of Holies. And then you bring that out to the world. That's that's how it has to be. Yet when we go to seminary and we do this and it's all, you know, it's like, well, you know, you've got to be skilled in management skills and you've got to be good leaders and good this that, and which we need to be. But I find the emphasis is too much on the natural and not actually on the spiritual and the supernatural. And so there are, there are rhythms of prayer. I'm, it's going to be a little bit all over the place today because I'm trying to bring in lots of threads here. But as I say, breathing out and breathing in in prayer is one thing. But also there is the place of the rhythm of prayer as well. So you'll see this more in the traditional denominations like the Anglican and the Catholic churches. So they'll pray, uh, they have like mornings, morning song. Then you've got prayers at 9, 12, 3 and an even song. But these aren't man-made ideas. They actually come from the old temple. So on the old temple, 
the morning lamb that was going to be sacrificed was tied to the altar around about nine o'clock. Sorry, no, it was tied to the altar at eight o'clock in the morning. So there would be morning prayers. You tie the lamb to the altar. Then at nine o'clock, incense would be offered. You would slaughter the lamb. Then at 12 o'clock, you tie the next lamb to the altar. At three o'clock, you would slay the lamb. And, and then it would go on round like that. Of course, then at the destruction of the temple, they then carried on with something similar, but with praying. So they used liturgy and they prayed the Psalms. They've been doing that for thousands of years. And then of course you come to the days of Jesus. He was handed over to be crucified in the morning. He was actually put to the cross at 12 and he was crucified at three, following the prototype which was revealed in the shadow and the type of the temple. You with me so far? Then you read in the Gospels how the disciples met at the third hour to pray and all this kind of stuff. This is not just, oh, we just met at the third hour to pray. They were intentional times in the day when the Jewish people came together. Now, when the Jew, early Jewish uh, believers became believers in, in Jesus and so became Messianic believers, they carried on that tradition. And so the early church carried on that tradition. And so the traditional church today still carry on that tradition. And... One of the things that when God said to me, you know, about these monastic communities, um, it kind of like led me on this really peculiar journey. And one day I was, I was going on a ferry over to the Isle of Wight and I saw this advert come on uh, on the screen on the ferries uh, for this place called Core Abbey, which is like a Catholic abbey. And I was like, but something just hit me. And I was like, I said to my wife, I said, I don't care what happens. We need to go there and we need to go there now. And she's like, all right, okay. So we went there. And I, I went into this abbey and, in, and it was, and it, with instant I went, it just something just hit my heart. Like I can't describe it. And it wouldn't go away. And it didn't go away. I was there for all week and it just wouldn't leave me. And in that moment, I, start, I went into their bookshop and I looked at all these books by these great authors on prayer that were before the Reformation. So I was trained to think there's no life before the Reformation. Before the Reformation, it's just all nonsense, all right? Don't even go there. But I realized there was this, there was this huge, big, um, uh, literally volumes of, volumes of books written like hundreds and you know, years before the, before the Reformation by people like St. Teresa of Avila, who were like called doctors of the church because of the, how much they gave to the church on, on the teachings of prayer. And you know, the early church fathers and what they taught on prayer. And I just suddenly realized I have been robbed. I've been robbed of history, which is rightfully mine as a Christian. I've been robbed of this rich wealth of knowledge that other traditions are still walking in. But because I'm Protestant and I don't want to go there, I'm completely devoid and ignorant to those wonderful <coughs> things on prayer. And so as I then studied these books, God just opened to me a wonderful world of understanding and this whole thing about praying on the hours. You see, when you pray on the hours... I'm going to talk about different types of prayer, but as evangelical Christians, charismatics, what have you, we do what I call praying in the church. So praying in the church is when you're in the church, but you're praying your own prayers. So throughout the day, you say, dear Lord Jesus, I hope I get that parking space over there or something. Or you start interceding for people or supplications and things. But then other churches, which are more traditional, they do another thing called praying with the church. How often do we as Christians know that we're praying prayers at certain times of the day that we know that millions of other believers are praying exactly the same prayers? There is, you see, when brothers dwell together in unity, it commands the blessing. Now, you might not necessarily agree with their theology, but if you're all praying the same prayers at certain times of the day for our nation and what have you, it's powerful. 
And I think this is something that God wants to bring back to the wider church is actually it is good to have this rhythm of prayer. It's good to be praying the Psalms and scripture throughout the day because it keeps us focused on God. But it also means that the church wider can come together and pray corporately for the same things. It means throughout the world, as you're, as you're praying, you've got different time zones. It means that prayers, the same prayers, are going up before God 24-7 all of the time. So we need to do our praying in the church. But one of the things I think we need to rediscover is praying with the church. So I, I've, been, I've been practicing this now for probably about three or four years where I use things like Liturgy of the Hours, which is like a, a prayer book. And I use things like Divine Office from the Anglican Church, where you pray certain prayers throughout the day. Now, that might seem really dry and really like repetitive. And what's the point? And, uh, and so I stopped it for a little bit thinking, well, you know, is this really having any real effects? I can't feel anything. And uh, I stopped doing it. And then I had a dream. And in this dream, I heard the audible voice of God. And he said to me, I want you to pray with the church. And so I knew the next day I had to get back to it as well. And it does have an effect on you because, you know, the old, the old church bells, for example, or the old uh, churches, they would, their bells would ring at three, sorry, at, at nine, 12, three and six. And it was at those times it was to remind the people to pray. Indeed, um, the old uh, church clocks with bells was invented to actually make people pray or to remember to pray at certain times. But we don't realise that anymore, unfortunately. It's kind of just got lost in history. And so looking now at, and I'm going to talk about revival as well in a minute and how this all links together. But looking at the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, we look at the ark, sorry, not the ark, the tabernacle of Moses. And we look at the Aaronic priesthood. And we know that the Aaronic priesthood were in part mimicking prophetically that which Christ was going to come to fulfil. Yeah, we'd all, all agree with that. But there's a whole load of other stuff. You see, Hebrews 8.5 says, uh, where God says to Moses, you must make the tabernacle according to the heavenly pattern. And so there's stuff that's going up in, on in heaven that the Aaronic priesthood were mimicking on the earth. But that pattern is still going on right now in heaven. And you go, how do you know that? Because, let's turn with me to the book of Revelation. Now, most of your Bibles, when it talks about the temple in heaven, we'll use the word temple or sanctuary, is actually tabernacle. Um, and so that's, what, that's what's going on. So the tabernacle on earth was an imitation, a very poor imitation or shadow of that which is going on in heaven. So in Revelation chapters 4, 5 and 8, gives us gives us a glimpse of what true worship looks like in heaven. Now, I want you to pay special attention to what the angels do, because one of the things I've never heard anyone preach on is that angels are also priests. Because they are holding the golden lavers. They are putting the incense on the lavers and they are presenting it and singing harp, uh, singing songs on harps and presenting golden <laughs> bowls before the Lord and adding incense to it. They have a priestly function. So the, what the Aaronic priesthood were doing back in the Old Testament was actually again mimicking the angelic uh, side of things in their priesthood uh, before God as well. And you'll see all this in a minute as, as we move forward. So uh, let's have a look. So Revelation 5 Verses 8 to 14. I'm just going to fly through these because I've got a lot of time. 
And uh, when he'd taken the scroll, now bear in mind this is set in the now, as far as John is concerned, before he gets the visions of the future, okay? And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So obviously we as believers in Christ are also part of that priesthood as well. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, if you've got a really good cross-reference Bible, you'll notice that those angels are quoting scripture. Okay, so there's liturgy in heaven. There's incense in heaven. There's praying in heaven. There's worship in heaven. There is a priestly function of angels and of, of, of saints in heaven. Okay, why is all this important? Because, you know, what we need to be doing on the earth is imitating and coming into alignment with what's going on in heaven. Okay, this is why this is really important that we we see this. So when you see the traditional churches that have incense and stuff, it's not they're trying to go back to the old Levitical priesthood. Actually, if you know the history of those churches, is actually they got their idea from the book of Revelation. They thought we want to imitate and say so they even use the same liturgy. We want to imitate on the earth what's going on in heaven. OK, so there's something really quite profound in that. Um, where are we? Uh, Revelation 8 verses 1 to 4. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now, think, remember the Old Testament tabernacle. You had the outer court. And then you had the, the big brazen altar where the animals were sacrificed. Then you had the laver of water where, which the priests washed in. Then you come into the holy place. Now in the holy place you have the, a big table which is called where you put the showbread or the bread of the presence. You had the Jewish menorah. Then over here you had another altar which was the prayer incense um, altar. And then you had the veil. Then behind the veil you had in the most holy place you had the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, which represents the manifest presence of God. So if you know Book of Revelation really well, you'll know that before God stands the seven angels, which are that represent the seven churches and the sevenfold spirit of God. There's your Jewish menorah. Um, you also have the bread of the presence, which is Christ. Then you also have the that incense altar, which is talking about there, which is before the sea of glass in heaven, which is the barrier between into the most holy place. And there in the most holy place, you have God the Father. And around him are the four cherubim and seraphim that cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And on the Ark of the Covenant, you had the cherubim with their wings arched over God. So everything you're seeing here was shown and revealed in the Old Testament and that which was shown in the Old Testament is revealed in the book of Revelation. I appreciate I'm giving you a big crash course into Revelation really quickly. Um, uh, yeah, so but we've got lots to get through. So just stick with me. We, according to 1 Peter 2.9, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation unto God. Okay, so all these things are important. And this is why 
again, going back to the old temple system, you know, I think it's good for us as Christians. You should try it. It's to incorporate into your life that rhythm of prayer as well at nine, at 12, at three, at six, so on, so on and so forth, because it really does help. And knowing that when you're doing certain types of prayer and you're doing certain type of worship, think about what's going on in heaven and thinking about, instead of it's just, oh, we're just praying and singing songs down here. Think about that you are actually, what you're doing on the earth is sending up those prayers and worship into heaven. Those angels are taking that praise and worship and those prayers. They're putting it into golden uh, altar thingies. They're then cracking incense into it to give it more potency and power. And they're presenting it then before God, uh, probably to Jesus, who is the high priest, who will then present it to God the Father. And when you realize and you start getting an understanding of this, prayer isn't just this, oh, it's just what are we doing? We seem to be praying to the ceiling. You understand the mechanics and what's going on in the heavenly realms. And it means what you're doing is so much more, more uh, how can I describe it? More real and more significant than you would probably would begin to first initially think. And so our house of prayer, you know, every time we end the evening, I always say, you know, thank you, Lord, that these prayers have gone up into heaven, that the angels have done it, because it constantly reminds us there's a harp and bowl session going on in heaven. You know, they're playing the harps and the bowl. It's not a pub, harp and bowl. And they've taken these things and they're coming before the Lord. And we have a part to play in that. And I think when the church begins to prophetically understand that you have a part to play in what you're reading in Revelation, it's really exciting. Don't just think of Revelation as what's to come or what happened, but actually this is a snapshot of what is right now, because this is going on all the time. And if you're worried about uh, repetition and vain repetition, if in Isaiah chapter 6, you have the seraphim and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The same seraphim in the book of Revelation saying the same thing. You know why they're saying the same thing? They're covered in eyes all over and within. And whenever they see God, all they can say is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because they're just over, so just consumed with his glory and his power and his majesty. What else could they say? If I say to my wife every day, I love you, I'm not, I'm not guilty of vain repetition. I'm, I mean what I say. Yeah. So we can all be guilty of vain repetition if we don't put our hearts into it. But when we pray, we should always put our heart into what we do. So that's just like a little crash course there in, in like you know, a whole lot of stuff prefer, refer, referring to prayer. But when it comes to revival, one of the things that I, I noticed in every revival, and this is so obvious, you'll be thinking, yeah, we all know that, is prayer precedes yeah. every revival. Um, you know, for example, and I, I know this one was kind of fixed by God anyway, but in Acts chapter 1, 14 and verses 2, 1, before the outpouring of Pentecost, what were they all doing? They were all praying and of one accord. OK, um, and I want to look at now just a few examples of communities that have literally changed the world through prayer. So in 1727, you had a uh, in her as it uh, yeah, in Hernhut in Saxony, which is modern day German, Germany you had a group of people called the Moravians. And they, I don't, for, for various reasons, they decided they were going to do 100 years of solid prayer, nine round the clock. They just, as a community, they took, oh, I'll do the 12 o'clock shift, you do the one o'clock shift. And they just prayed like this for 100 years. Okay. Coincidentally, the first great awakening in America started in 1730. 
just a few years after they started praying, you know, with the likes of Gilbert Tennant, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, all those great early preachers and stuff. Uh, which, and it was a revival of piety and purity and coming back to the truth of scripture and stuff. Um, and so many of the English colonists were like just swept up in this wonderful fire of God and very much lots of holiness preaching and things like that. Just really, really birthed something quite beautiful and remarkable in America. Then in 1790 to 1835, we have the second Great Awakening. Uh, and people that you might know are in that are Charles Finney. Uh, theologians such as Timothy Dwight and uh, Lyman Beecher, Nathaniel W. Taylor, and many of these people preached the word or, combat, or combated against uh, liberalism and rationalism of the day. So again, it was a real uh, a move of the word of God as well. And, um, and also in the Second Great Awakening, that's when camp meetings began. I don't know if you know that, but, you know, they used to like meet in these places. And, and also, this has never been done before, but there was over a hundred women itinerant preachers that were going around America preaching and, with, and also, you know, uh, uh, black people as well. And this had never been done before. And so you were starting to see white people and black people start to come together. And this was, you know, this is obviously really early grassroots stuff, but nevertheless, it started something which really changed America. Um, many great preachers were born a little bit later um, towards the end of the Second Great Awakening. You move into now what we call the first move of the spirit. So this is kind of the first wave of the Pentecostal kind of movement. So you had people like John Al Jonathan Alexander Dowie, Mariah Woodworth Etta. You ever heard of her? Yeah. Now, I don't think by even today's standards, anyone touches that woman in respect to the anointing that, she, that God gave her. She started off as a woman evangelist, which wasn't particularly popular, uh, but she did it anyway. And lots of people got saved. But then God gave her dreams where these wheat sheaves would fall down to the ground. And one of the occurrences that kept happening in her ministry was that people would just fall into trances in her meetings. And they would either have visions of hell or visions of heaven. And through that, they would get saved. There was loads of healings. Again, healing had never really taken place before uh, in the Second Great Awakening. But in this first move of the Spirit, you know, bear in mind that the Moravians are still praying. Okay. And you can see the immediate effect that, that their prayers actually had. And so, but then even, even here, so I'm going to bring it back a little bit more close to home. So in, in autumn of 1857, uh, in, in New York, um, just prior to a, a financial collapse, things were not good. Uh, banks were on the verge of going bust because um, the railroad industry had peaked out and it was losing money and various other things. So America was, was not in a good place. And many churches were closing down because no one could afford to pay the ministers and couldn't afford to keep the place open. So churches were shutting down. Okay, uh, So therefore, there go. I'll bring you back to the prophecies I said earlier. And so this was kind of the, the backstory of what was going on here. And there was a guy called uh, Jeremiah Lamphere. Anyone heard of him? in church history and he decided to do something he said guys we need to we need to sort this this nation out so he decided to do a businessman's prayer meeting and uh, in uh, in september 23rd 1857 he put out these flyers well that's when the meeting started he said on on this date we're just going to have just an hour hour prayer meeting once a week okay so the first week first half hour no one turned up usual prayer meeting <laughs> then then six people turned up then the next week, 20 people turned up. Then the next week, 60 people turned up. Um, but then he still felt, you know, this is not cutting it. There's not enough prayer power that's going to that's gonna save New York at, at, at this stage. 
Uh, then on October the 14th, the stock market did collapse. Uh, banks closed. The whole country was just in a complete dis disarray. And it had, at that time, it was the worst financial crisis it had ever experienced. Uh, and then suddenly, New Yorkers flocked to these prayer meetings. Now, there are hand-drawn pictures of just how mad it was. Any room at lunchtime that could be booked, all the theatres, everywhere, until the point where people were queuing on the streets, you couldn't get into these prayer meetings. The whole city came to pray. Uh, and, and it was just amazing. But you see, in, in today where we're at now, I get, I get some Christians saying, we don't need revival. Because we can just be revived ourselves. And it's true for that. We should be revived ourselves. But there's certain things that no matter how revived you are, you can't do. And what you can't do is this. So when these people were in this prayer uh, movement that was going on, which was then picked up in Chicago and various other cities throughout America, so slowly but surely, all America at lunchtime was praying for the state of their nation because of the, because of the financial collapse and crisis. Uh, and so you'd be getting cargo ships. And this is this is written on records that for these cargo ships, as they would come within two miles of New York City, people on the deck would start to fall down under the power of God and and be convicted of their sins and give their lives to the Lord and repent of their sins. But you can't do that no matter how revived you are. This has to be a move of God. And so it's when the church and people uh, intercede on mass for the state of their nation, then God will really move. Uh, there, there is, and again, this is this is not me making it up. This is on, this is uh, catalogued. That there, a few years later, we had the American Civil War that came out. Well, while people are fighting each other on the battlefield, the spirit is just moving across the whole battlefield, and people are giving their lives to the Lord literally before they get shot. And and it's just, and you think all of this is just down to a simple thing, prayer. And, and when people, and this is another thing, when people are desperate. They'll pray. I mean, I don't I can't remember what happened, but a couple of years ago, um, our house of prayer one night was completely packed. And the reason why it was completely packed is because it had something to do with the Middle East. And it looked like if it wasn't dealt with, it would break out into the whole world and affect their way of life. Mm -hmm. It was kind of interesting. Now that it's going to affect your life. Now you're all here to pray about it. And so sometimes it takes a shaking of our nation to make people wake up that actually we need to call upon our God to save this nation because only he can do it. Amen. Mm -hmm. other, other revivals, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, you've got like, the Azusa Street Revival which came. You know, the Azusa Street Revival didn't just happen. It started with William J. Seymour who wanted to ha have the gift of tongues and, and stuff and so he prayed. And they, I can't remember, I think it's Braemore Street or something, I can't remember exactly where, where it was. But he, 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 he was in a friend's house and he prayed and he prayed and then other people got involved and they prayed and then other people to the point where the, the house physically couldn't hold any more people because people were starting to fall through the floorboards and stuff. It was that many people in and they're all out in the garden praying. And then the baptism of the spirit hit them. And then after that, it was like, OK, we, we can't do this here anymore. We need to find a place. And they found some spit and sawdust place and some cans, stick some uh, nails on it and some boards. And that became, you know, the, the church. And God did wonderful things there. But those people, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. I've got a book called um, They Told Me Their Stories. And I won't, I won't share it with anyone because it's too precious. I'm not, you know how you lend a book and never get it back? I was like, I'm not lending this one. And, and it's, it was written by an old guy who interviewed some older guys and girls who were children during that revival. And they said the Shekinah glory was so thick in that church, the kids used to play hide and seek in it, you know, in the meetings. 
and, 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 you said, and when they prayed in tongues, it was reported that tongues of fire would come up from the building 40 foot into the sky. But then another column of fire would come down to meet it. And it was at that time then the most powerful miracles would take place. And uh, three miles away, people would be coming off the old steam train to come into the, into the area. And people would just be like falling down like dominoes as they're being hit by the power of God. This is on unbelievers as well. Um, we have obviously, you know, about the Welsh revival, the, the Hebridean revival, you know, the Hebridean revival again, you know, um, is it, what's the name of the preacher? Was it uh, Duncan, Duncan, Duncan Campbell? That's it, yeah. You know, he, he said that the, the people were in the village, the church were praying, where there were people in the village just going about their normal day and suddenly just got convicted by the Spirit of God. And people were falling to their knees, just crying out, what must I do to be saved? They all ran up to the church thinking and banging on the door to get in because like, what are you guys doing? What's going on? Why am I thinking like this? And of course they had a revival, etc. So they've had five revivals actually. I remember another revival in Transkei in Africa and there were people, there was ladies praying and fasting without eating and drinking for 120 days. It was a supernatural thing. And these, these are people I have met. These are not like, this is not some ancient revival. Prayer was the key. Then came the revival, you know, lots of crazy miracles like resurrections from the dead and stuff. But then it started to wane. So what did they do? They didn't go, oh, well, this move of God has come and gone now. They just got back to praying again. And then the spirit came again and the fire fell again. So... It, you can quite see here the, the logic of A equals B, yeah? Um, and so, just to bring this to a close, all I'm really saying today is I'm trying to just envision us the importance of corporate prayer, the importance of our own prayer life as well. Don't go burn out for Jesus by becoming an intercessor for the nations. Make sure that you also are spending time with the Lord and that you are breathing in so that you can come into a place where you can breathe out with the wider body. And also the importance that as churches, maybe let's do a lot less scattershot prayer and maybe come together in unity to pray for things like respecting our nation. And maybe other ideas where if our churches are too far apart, where we say, right, at 9, 12 and 3, here's some prayers that we're all going to say together for the sake of our nation. And you're praying in unison and in unity, even though you're not in the same room, but you're all praying at the same time and there's power in that unity. Um, so that's really all I want to say today, really. So everything I've been saying about the prophetic and things, one of the key elements for the church to succeed, you see, God doesn't want his church to survive. He wants his church to thrive. And the key for us to get through what we're coming into, is God wants his church to be ahead of the curve, not behind the curve. And I really do believe emphatically the only way you can, we can be ahead of the curve is through prayer. Amen. Amen.